Welcome to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Bachelor, and Randy Janda. We call the Canuck games for you here on the radio, and we're with you every week with our weekly show slash podcast slash whatever this is. So thanks for joining us yet again. And Randeep, an eventful week for the Canucks, but more eventful off the ice than on the ice with all of the news around Elias Pettersson. <laughs> hey, this is Brendan Batchelor talking to you at 12.23 p.m. on Saturday, March the 2nd, and I'm recording an insert for our podcast here on In the Booth and for our show, of course, if you're listening on the radio on Sportsnet 650, because full disclosure, Randeep and I recorded a full episode on Friday night talking about the Canucks' struggles, talking about players they might be able to acquire prior to the deadline, answering a lot of your questions that you submitted to us for this week's show. And then a lot of that was thrown out the window on Saturday morning when the Canucks made major news by announcing that Elias Pettersson had been signed to an eight-year contract extension, paying him an average annual value of $11.6 million per season. So I scrambled downtown early this morning, got down there for the press conference. We got to chat with Pettersson. We got to chat with Patrick Alvine. We had great coverage of that. I was on with Bick Nazar for about 90 minutes this morning, too, breaking things down live in real time. And you can find uh, that podcast, I believe, on the People's Show podcast feed as it was a special morning edition on a Saturday of the People's Show. Uh, so this insert is going to provide my analysis anyway of the Pedersen extension, what it means for the Canucks going forward, and then we'll get you back to the regular scheduled programming, if we want to call it that, which was the rest of the podcast that we recorded on Friday night. And a lot of that stuff talked about the current on-ice issues with the team, so it you know remains the same. Nothing has changed in that regard. But in terms of Pedersen... Uh, Obviously, I think it's a a great deal for the Canucks now. We were hearing from a lot of you on the Dunbar-Lumber text line this morning that don't agree with that opinion, that think that, you know, $11.6 million a season over an eight-year term is an overpayment for Elias Pettersson. Um, but, But I wonder if some of that opinion is colored by his recent struggles and the recent struggles of the team. Because I think the way we have to look at this contract is to look in the bigger picture. And while $11.6 million seems like a lot for one individual player, and when you look at the Canucks' salary structure and what their other players are making right now, it is obviously quite a lot more than JT Miller, who's making $8 million a season. Quite a lot more than Quinn Hughes, who's at $7.85 million per season for the remainder of his contract. You have to look at it in the context of where the salary cap is, where the salary cap's going, and where the economics of the NHL are heading. Because right now, this Pedersen deal looks like a lot of money. But the one thing we know, the salary cap is expected to go up in the the coming months, in the coming years. Uh, The economics of the NHL are getting back on track coming out of the COVID pandemic. And while this is one of the five richest contracts in the NHL right now, I firmly believe that this deal is going to be a bargain and it might be considered a bargain within a couple of years because as the salary cap goes up, top players that are renegotiating their contracts 
um, you know, will want a percentage of the salary cap. And I think that's maybe a better way to look at this is percentage of the salary cap for a player like Elias Pettersson, who, you know, making $11.6 million, um, you know, coming in at around 13%, I believe. And I'm not going to try and sit here and do the math on the fly because that wouldn't be good for me. It wouldn't be good for any of you to listen to. But we're looking at approximately 13% of the salary cap. And while that is a sizable chunk, the numbers that comprise similar percentages of cap hit are going to be exponentially increased in the next few years, in my opinion anyway, as we're likely to see the salary cap rise year over year. So as much as you can look at it and say, oh, he's, you know, making $11.6 million, one of the highest paid players in the league, but he's not a McDavid, he's not a Matthews. I think we have to look at it more within the context of what was the percentage of the salary cap that those guys were earning at the time they signed their contracts because, you know, different economic factors come into play at different times. Obviously, different terms on contracts are going to be impacted as well. And while this may look like a lot of money right now, I think the Canucks will be vindicated going forward that this will actually be a bargain for a player like Elias Patterson. Now, the the other element of the feedback that, you know, we were seeing on the Dunbar Lumber text line this morning is people that just don't think he's worth the money regardless of whether they consider it an overpayment or not. And we we're seeing lots of stuff about, oh, he falls over a lot and, um, you know, he can't really elevate his game. He's he's not leading the team through a tough moment right now. And I think we need to step back and have a little bit of perspective on how important Elias Patterson is to the Vancouver Canucks at this moment. And while I will agree, in the short term, his play hasn't exactly been great on the ice, although you could say that about most of the members of this team with the the little wobble in the schedule they're going through right now at the very least, um, you know, one win in their last seven games. Elias Patterson was a 100-point player last year. He's on pace for 99 points this year. He's got 75 points through 62 games as we chat here on Saturday afternoon before the Canucks get set to face the Anaheim Ducks on Sunday. So on pace for 99 points, couple of good games here or there, that could push you over 100. So we're looking at the possibility of a player posting back-to-back 100-point seasons. He's almost certainly going to post three consecutive 30-goal seasons. And Are there things you can quibble with in his game? Absolutely. I'm not sitting here disputing that. I'm not going to argue and say that Elias Pettersson is the perfect player. But when you have a player that signs a contract like this, it's oftentimes because of the offensive bottom line that he provides for this team. And make no mistake about it, Elias Pettersson has produced for this team like no other player over the last couple of seasons. So, yeah, does he fall down sometimes? Do you not like the body language when he throws his head back and gets frustrated after losing a puck battle? Sure, those are all fair criticisms. I think it's important to differentiate, though, fair criticisms of a player from reasons that you shouldn't sign him. Because no matter who you're signing, even if it's Connor McDavid, McDavid's not the perfect player. He went through a stretch recently where he was struggling to score goals. But the the pros and cons, if you want to look at it that way, sure, there are some things in the cons list for Pedersen, but the pros vastly outweigh the cons. The importance of this player 
to this team, I don't think it can really be overstated. And the fact that they're able to get him locked up to this contract, that they have long-term salary cap certainty, this isn't any sort of bridge deal, they didn't do shorter term, like they've gone max term here, Pedersen is committing to be a Vancouver Canuck for most of the next decade. You know, it's hugely beneficial for the organization. And as I said, I I think we will see the contract prove to be a value contract over time. And it's fair to criticize Pedersen's game. I just don't understand the people that say, oh, he falls down a lot. They shouldn't have signed him because this is still a guy that puts up 100 points. I think we also need to talk about the importance of timing with a contract like this. Because not only do they get Pedersen signed, Not only do they get the long-term stability of knowing what he's going to make, but they get it done with six days till the trade deadline. And Patrick Alvin in the past had talked about the fact that, you know, we'll go into the deadline and whether we have certainty on Pedersen or not, it's not going to impact the things that we do. But I asked him about it this morning at the press conference, and, and he admitted that having Pedersen's number in ink now, knowing what he's going to make, allows them to not just plan for the short term in terms of the trade deadline coming up here in under a week, but it allows them to plan for the long term. And that is important in terms of this team building to try and win now, because we've heard reports in recent weeks that the Canucks might be looking to make another notable move, but they don't want to give up first-round picks or premium assets for another rental. We've already seen them do that with Elias Lindholm, and when we get back to the the portion of this show that isn't an insert on the Pedersen contract, uh, Randeep and I had a chance to talk a little bit about Lindholm uh, and, and his fit in this lineup, and things that have have happened with him since he arrived. So you'll hear that later on in this show. But they didn't want to give up these premium assets for another rental, which means any player that they might bring in is someone that they're going to want to keep here long-term, whether they're acquiring a player that already has term on his contract and is cost-controlled, or whether they're acquiring a potential free agent in a sign-in trade or immediately signing him as soon as they acquire him. So now that they have certainty on Pedersen, they have a greater idea of what their salary cap structure is going to look like. And sure, Philip Hironik isn't signed yet. They've got to make decisions on Dakota Joshua, Teddy Bluger, Ian Cole, Tyler Myers. Like, the list goes on. But the biggest piece of that puzzle is now locked into place, and they have a better picture of what they might be able to do long-term. So if you can make the money work in the short term, maybe you can go get a Jake Gensel. And, you know, there are numerous other players that uh, people asked us about that you'll hear us discuss, uh, Randeep and I, later on in this very show. But I just think the value of getting this deal done now is so important for the Canucks as an organization over the next few days because it allows them to explore more things than maybe they might have otherwise in terms of bettering this team in the short term and potentially adding to the group of players that they have under contract for the long term. A couple of other notes I wanted to mention here while we're doing this insert to the podcast. Again, if you're just joining, Randeep and I recorded in the booth on Friday night and then the Canucks extended Pedersen on Saturday morning and Randeep wasn't able to join me here today as he's getting ready for Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi on Saturday night. Uh, But some other news 
from around the Canucks, and they practiced Saturday after the Pedersen announcement and press conference. Tyler Myers was not at practice on Saturday, and after practice, Rick Tockett confirmed that Myers is week-to-week with an injury, so Mark Friedman is expected to go into the lineup against the Anaheim Ducks on Sunday. We also saw uh, Carson Soucy be a full practice participant. Uh, doesn't look like he's going to be ready to come back into the lineup yet, but he wasn't wearing a non-contact jersey or anything. He skated as the seventh defenseman at practice, got some PK work in as well. So that's good news that I would imagine you're looking at a return for Carson Soucy to the Canucks lineup within the next week. It was also a big surprise to see Guillaume Brisebois on the ice for Canucks practice. And Brisebois has been out since a preseason injury Really, you know, from my perspective, I mention him in the players that are out of the lineup every night uh, when we do the radio broadcast, but uh, it didn't look like he was going to be able to come back. Well, Breezebois took part in practice in a non-contact jersey, so we'll see where things go, but obviously that is great to see for a guy that's battled injury issues this year. Otherwise, there were some tweaks to the lines. Pew Suter was skating with Niels Hoaglander and Elias Pettersson. Ilya Mikheyev was with G.T. Miller and Brock Besser. Phil DiGiuseppe on a line with Elias Lindholm and Connor Garland. And Niels Oman appearing to slot back in on a line with Teddy Bluger and Sam Lafferty. So that is the latest for you here. This insert to In the Booth. Again, we recorded it Friday night. There's lots of stuff from the Friday night recording that's relevant to what the Canucks are doing right now. But that does it for this insert I'm recording here on Saturday. So we'll get you back to our regularly scheduled programming, if we call it that, with me and Randy. (laughs) On the ice, things haven't been great. Uh, Disappointing loss to the Pittsburgh Penguins. An even more disappointing loss to the Los Angeles Kings. And now the Canucks head out for... Three games on the road in the Western United States starting on Sunday against the Anaheim Ducks with some pressure mounting now that they've lost six of their last seven games. That's right, and it's not only the the results are one thing, one five and one in their last seven, it's the process. And it's something we've talked about so uh, glowingly with this team through essentially, I want to say, probably 55 games. The last few haven't been great, but the process has been the strength of this team where structure and details have been really what's led this team to success. Those things have fallen off here in the last seven games as that game against LA, similar to the Seattle Kraken game where just mistakes compounded and essentially that's the reason you lose. And, and it wasn't a good game, especially that LA game where, you know, it's close up until the third period batch, but a couple of things, when you start really pushing, when you try to, to you know, try to really attack, um, you start making mistakes because you're trying to go for that home run swing, and L.A. took advantage. They certainly did, and the thing that Rick Tockett always talks about is duplicating mistakes, so you don't just make one mistake, then in trying to cover up for the mistake, somebody else makes another mistake or or presses, and... Uh, There were numerous goals in that game against the Kings where it's not like you could pin it on one guy being out of position or one guy missing an assignment. It would be a missed assignment or a bad decision that would lead to another missed assignment and a bad decision. And certainly later in the game, Canucks are pressing down a goal or two, and you can understand that that might happen in that scenario. But at the same time, we have the evidence from last weekend that 
when you stick to the things that have allowed you to have success, you're actually more likely to come back and win the game if you just play the way that you know has served you well all season long. And uh, that was the biggest difference for me, say, for the Boston game as opposed to the L.A. game. The Boston game, the Canucks, through two periods, and we heard J.T. Miller and others talk about it after the game, said we felt we had outplayed them through two periods. We knew if we kept working, the bounces would go our way. And it paid off, and it benefited them, and they won. It was the exact opposite against the Kings, where they weren't playing to those staples. They weren't playing to that structure. They were chasing the game, not just on the scoreboard, but out on the ice, too. And the Kings certainly took advantage. And one of the things this time of the year you have to keep in mind, especially against teams that are playoff bound, and the Canucks are going to get a lot of them here coming up on the schedule, minus the Ducks, you've got you know Winnipeg and Vegas and other teams that are popping up in the schedule that are kind of you know firmly in a playoff spot or at the very least will be in a couple of weeks here, is that you don't compound your mistakes, but it is a bit of a staring contest. And L.A. was a classic example where through the first 20 minutes of hockey – and up until that first goal in the first period, it's a pretty low event game. So who's going to make the first mistake? And unfortunately for the Canucks, it's that Noah Juleson screen. Kevin Fiala gets a lot of room and a lot of time. Drew Doughty comes in and Noah Juleson's just right in front of his goaltender. And that's the first mistake. And do you compound that with a mistake later on? Unfortunately, the Canucks do with Elias Pettersson giving away the puck. It ends up you know, on, on Jay Kopitar's stick. He makes it 2 nothing. In these matchups... It's going to be a staring contest. It's going to be a situation where you got to keep, you know, those giveaways low. And at the end of 60 minutes, it was 8-3 giveaways for Vancouver. And they weren't winning that matchup. That's Vancouver with 8, unfortunately. So in these matchups, Batch, there's a number of things that are going on. We talk about the structure. You talk about keeping your shape. But I think it really does come back to puck management and against playoff teams they're going to be able to act on one or two mistakes. That's all it takes to swing up a playoff series. So this is a learning experience for the Vancouver Canucks. It is a slump. We can officially say that. This is the first real slump that this team has had. Adversity is one thing. We were talking about that maybe one or two weeks ago. But they're in a spot right now that they have to get back to those details of the game and really refining those details because they have gotten away from that. Injuries have an element to that, but I also think there's an internal standard that they've set a really high bar this year that they're unfortunately not able to meet right now. Yeah, and injuries can't really be an excuse. If someone like JT Miller or Elias Patterson or mm-hmm. Quinn Hughes was out of the lineup, then maybe you would look at that. Like, the Kings were without Adrian Kempe uh, in that game in Vancouver. Yeah, and Pittsburgh They're, was without uh, Brian Rust and Jake Gensel, right? Exactly. Like, teams have to overcome injuries, and the Canucks' injuries – all due respect to the guys that are out of the lineup, compared to some of those players we're talking about on these other teams, aren't really injury problems. Like Dakota Joshua, at best, you're calling him a second liner based on the the way that line has been deployed this year. And that might be a little generous too. So if we're talking about a second line winger in Dakota Joshua and a third pairing defenseman in Carson Soucy being out of your lineup now with injuries, the Kings had... A longer injury list than that, yep. certainly, and, and more Their leading key point scorer was, <laughs> was on the uh, injured list. Exactly. Jake Gensel yep. is, like, uh, on the tip of, uh, of everybody's tongue here going into the trade deadline as a huge asset and a key player for the Penguins that may end up being a key player somewhere else. Like, teams deal with injuries. It's part of the game, and the Canucks have been very lucky to be very healthy this year, so injuries aren't an excuse. Um, the one thing I do wonder about, and – 
we did get a couple of questions in on this, so we're kind of going to one of the mailbag topics a little bit early. Is There's a couple things. I wonder if they're tired, which, again, isn't necessarily an excuse, and Rick Tockett doesn't want that to be an excuse. He's talked about the fact that you need to find a way to still execute when you're fatigued, when you've had a busy schedule. Um, But the lack of practice time, I think, has been a big factor, too. They've been on the road. They've been at home. They've been back and forth. They've been traveling more than they've been skating, with the exception of games. And so now that we've flipped the calendar to March, that is the the one thing that, that gives me some hope here, that they're going to find their way out of this slump sooner rather than later, is they've got 12 games in March, none of them back to backs multiple situations where you've got multiple days between games and you're home for nine straight after this upcoming three-game road trip. So all of those things, like maybe a little bit more rest, certainly a little bit more practice time, and we've seen with this team that they can really benefit from the added practice time. You add all of those things together, and it makes me believe that this slump isn't going to last a lot longer. But I will provide the caveat that if – they get all that rest and they get all that practice time and they're still struggling to put together the kind of performances that we saw from them earlier in the season, that's when I'm going to be seriously concerned about this team. The Ducks on Sunday is going to be, you know, a, a get-right spot for this team. And the Ducks are not a elite team. We know that. You look at the standings, we can understand that. So when you're talking about writing the situation, it's not a gimme game. The Ducks have beaten, you know, other teams. So that's something that you have to make sure that, you get through that game, you pick up the two points. But Batch, after that, you've got the Kings in LA on Tuesday. You've got the Vegas Golden Knights on Thursday in Vegas. And then back in Vancouver, you got the Jets. Those three games, and throw in even the Avalanche on the 13th, which when we're really looking down the road here, 10 days down the line, 11 days, uh, you know, that's a situation where you're essentially saying those are areas that you need to you're not expected to win every single game. I understand that. Those are some really good teams we just talked about. But when you're talking about the process, when you're talking about getting ready for the playoffs, which March is all about, which is you know relying on your identity. And one of the strong suits of this Canucks team, I want to say in January, was that when they were picking up those points, it was they were beating teams with different styles, but they were sticking within their identity. They were a tough team to play against. They were aggressive on the forward check. The neutral zone was a no-man's land for teams because Teddy Bluger or J.T. Miller or Elias Pettersson, they were essentially, whoever was playing down the middle was playing that free safety role and disrupting. And Dakota Joshua was a part of that, but he wasn't the only one. It wasn't a one-man team. It was a number of players that were able to do that. Against the Kings, against the Golden Knights, against the Jets, against the Avalanche, you got to find that rhythm yet again. And that's an area where, you know, you're really prepping for the month of April. You're prepping for the playoffs because right now we talk about building that padding and having that, you know, fight for first overall in the league, but especially the Western Conference right now is supposed to be when you refine, you tweak. And sure, there's going to be injuries. There's going to be moments where you're maybe testing your depth. But this is where that identity, you start to really not form the identity, but cement that identity. And this is this is the month to do it. So I, I think with the Vancouver Canucks, you're slumping at the wrong time. But of course, you want to start se- cementing that identity to say against playoff teams like the Kings, like the Golden Knights, like the Jets, and the Avalanche, teams that are will thrive off your mistakes that you don't make any. And that's why I look at those games that I just mentioned to say, hey, 
It hasn't been great in the last seven games, but you still have a lot of time. And those matchups that are coming up against those elite teams, you got to start really cementing that identity. Yeah, and they've had the most trouble with teams that are the most desperate right now. I mm-hmm. think it's probably fair to say, like the Minnesota third period comeback. Seattle, uh, yep. Seattle, yeah, that's a team that's playing for its playoff life. Uh, so is Pittsburgh. So is L.A. in terms of positioning. And if you look at uh, their last couple of wins, like they beat the Boston Bruins, who are firmly cemented in a playoff spot just like they are. They beat the Detroit Red Wings. That's a pretty good win against a team that is battling for playoff positioning, but that's more than two weeks ago now. So, um, you know, the, the start of February began very well for the Canucks, where they won four of six games and had points in five of those first six games. And really, it's that, Winnipeg game on the Saturday night where things started to trend in the wrong direction and you can remember through that Winnipeg game and then the first couple of games of that Minnesota Colorado trip we were talking about they're still playing well five on five they're just not getting the results and this kind of ties in uh, to one of the mailbag questions we got in for this week which I I hope is tongue-in-cheek Austin in Langley writes in and says, the skid started when Batch had to step away from working games. When will he come out with a formal apology? Uh, I am so sorry that my wife had a child and I had to miss a couple of games. How dare I this is the prioritize wrong my family over the results of Vancouver's hockey team? I cannot believe I was so selfish. So I apologize profusely. No, 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 Batch. I've said it before. I'll say it again. When in doubt, blame Dan Riccio. That's all i got to say. <laughs> yes, and uh, of course, Reach stepped in for those couple of games. But getting back to what I'm talking about, like good teams make sure that these losing streaks don't extend or these stretches of bad hockey aren't prolonged. And we're essentially at the two-week mark now of things trending in the wrong direction for the Canucks. They cannot afford for us to be talking about this again on next week's show. Totally. And this is a situation. Remember, up until a couple of weeks ago, we're talking about the Vancouver Canucks are the most consistent team in hockey. They're the final team to lose three straight games in the NHL, which was, you know, a a badge of pride for this team. And it, it should be. But now, and this happens, adversity We've talked about it on various shows on Sportsnet 650. I know I've talked about it with the morning guys, Halford and Bruff. You've talked about a, a number of shows. Adversity is good during a regular season. You want that experience to saying, hey, I just got punched in the mouth. How did I deal with it? Did I get frazzled? Did I look dazed and confused? And how quickly did I react? Now, this is, if this was a 12-round fight, the Canucks are, you know, in maybe round seven and eight, they're, they're, <laughs> their knees are a little wobbly right now. They're probably a little dazed and confused, but this isn't round 12. You have to find ways to find you know solutions, and that's why I think the next little stretch of games here, and you mentioned the home advantage that they have. A lot of marches at home, Rick Tockett's mentioned that and talked about that, where it gives you practice time. It gives you an opportunity to really, for a lot of players, to regain some of that energy that they might have had early on this year, for sure, but one thing that you have to really tap into, and Batch, we've talked about this, whether it's on air or off air, you know, we've both asked players about this, but the urgency factor. You know, having that padding in the standings is so important 
It's a great thing. You pad your resume in January and February hits, you hit a bit of a lull, but you got to find that, uh, that, you know, that urgency. You got to find that desperation because there's a lot of teams, the Kings, they're going to have urgency in their games as we saw in that matchup against Vancouver, you know, the golden Knights, they're not, they're not settled. They're fighting. The jets are going head to head with the Dallas stars for top spot in the central. The avalanche are also in that discussion. So, you know, even the capitals, after winning their most recent game against the Philadelphia Flyers, they feel like they have a shot at the playoffs. So you're going to run into these teams where they're kind of like the Canucks from the last two years. They feel like they've got a bit of a hope or some games feel like game seven for them. Uh, you got to tap into that and say, all right, how do we hit that? And how do we build those good habits? And that's where I wouldn't say I'm worried for the Vancouver Canucks, but one thing that I think you have to keep in mind right now is that those good habits that you were doing, those things that were second nature to you in January, uh, they're not looking like they're second nature right now. You got to get that back to that point where it's a natural instinct of how to fall into your structure, how to make, you know, break pressure and meet pressure with pressure, especially when that forecheck's coming. So there's certain things that I'm looking at right now, Batch. I'm saying I'm not worried, but this team's got to get through this and they've got to really find a solution and match that level of desperation. On the other side, we'll get into the mailbag. We'll answer a bunch of your questions into the show, and we'll do the rose ceremony as we do every week as well. This is In the Booth on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Batchelor, and Randeep Janda. If you miss any part of the show, listening on the radio, it does live as a podcast as well on the Canucks Central podcast feed. Make sure you subscribe to it. You get In the Booth. You get every postgame show with Sat and Bick, and you get Canucks Central every weekday with Sat and Reach and any emergency podcasts that we do when there's breaking news around the Canucks. And with one week till the trade deadline, guess what? There's a good chance you'll be getting an emergency podcast of some sort in the next week with the track record of Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin and the moves that they have made since taking over this organization. All right, Randy, let's get into the mailbag. And we got a lot of questions both about this team on the ice and off the ice. And we'll start with our buddy JD listening down under. He says, is it too early to gauge Lindholm as a good trade? Are we now needing him to step up? And I, my answer to the first part is yes, it is too early to gauge whether this is a good trade. I know he's not playing well right now, but guess what? Most of the guys on this team aren't playing well right now. Where the value of this trade is going to be determined, Randeep, is not in the regular season. It's going to be in the playoffs this year and whether he can come through and fill a role for them uh, that is equal or greater than the price that they paid to bring him in. Well, one of the reasons you bring him in early is so you have a long runway. And I remember having this discussion on this very show with you on initial thoughts. It might have been even last week where we were talking about, hey, what's this trade been like? And we were both in agreement that it was a good start to Elias Lindholm's you know, career with the Vancouver Canucks. But here's the thing. That was a short-term thing. Now you go another week or two, 
and that chemistry hasn't been there five on five, whether it's with Pedersen, whether it's with Arshley Benz and Connor Garland, uh, whether it's been with an assortment of line mates. So to me, I think you do need to, you need to continue to tinker with line mates. And one of the areas that I, I haven't necessarily liked with both of those lines is whether it was Pedersen and Lindholm or Connor Garland and Lindholm, uh, that forecheck has not been consistent enough. And I don't think Elias Lindholm is going to bring that himself. He's not that type of player, but he's a guy that's going to be a second or third option on a line, but he's not a forechecker necessarily. And to me, you know, I think that's really an issue that's going across the Vancouver Canucks lineup of when you're playing with JT Miller, when you're playing with Brock Besser, let's go back a couple of months. Phil DiGiuseppe had a great start to the season, but Badge, what were we talking about? All right, PDG's game has dropped off. Who's going to be that player that plays next to them? Uh, we haven't really answered that question. Pew Suter's done a good job, but we've also seen Pew Suter jump up and down the lineup. The same goes for Elias uh, Lindholm, and the same goes for Elias Pettersson, where the third piece on a lot of those lines hasn't necessarily shown, you know, been shown to us. So to me, I think Elias Lindholm needs uh, a little bit more time. He needs a little bit more consistent teammates, but... One of the biggest issues with the Vancouver Canucks right now that I see is who is going to bring the heat? Who's going to be the aggressive forechecker? Niels Hoaglander is one of them, but I'm looking for more answers with this team. Dakota Joshua, when he gets back, you know he's going to bring it, but there's still, you know, in the top six, you're still looking for another player, whether that's PDG, whether that's Ilya Mikheyev, whether that's maybe somebody that's not on the roster right now to bring that effort. So I think with Lindholm, a part of that conversation is who's he playing with and who's going to be that consistent four checker to play alongside him and Connor Garland or him and Elias Pettersson. And this ties into another really good question from Corey on Twitter who writes in and says, how much do you think the losses are because of Joshua's absence or was it just a mere coincidence? And it's not a coincidence but it's not all on Joshua being injured, I think, is mm-hmm. the, the fair way to look at this, where we're talking about the forecheck, and yes, it has not been established as effectively over the last couple of weeks, shall we say, since Joshua's been out of the lineup. But at the same time, you shouldn't be relying on one guy to establish your forecheck. So, yes, they miss Joshua. They miss the unique skill set that he brings to the lineup, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they're struggling a bit with him out of the lineup. But that said, and we touched on this in the first segment, you've got to be able to withstand one injury to a middle six forward and still play the way that you want to play and have success. No doubt. Dakota Joshua, he's the most, I think, um, you want to say, effective F1 in this lineup, right? Uh, JT Miller's up there as well, of course, but JT Miller does have a role where sometimes, uh, depending on who he's playing with, he doesn't have to be the F1. The most consistent player, you could say, is Dakota Joshua. Look at the hits. Look at the physicality. Um, his play through the neutral zone is very underrated as well. The way that he's able to play that sticky style that Rick Tockett wants. And so there are some really good things that he does. But when we start looking across the rest of the roster, uh, there's certain elements that I thought the fourth line over the last couple of games has brought probably the most consistent forecheck in the last two games where... Lafferty, PDG, and Bluger as a trio have brought it. Do they have the finish? No, they don't. But are they able to bring it? Um, it's the top six right now. I think Pew Suter does a good job. But it's one of those situations where you're not maybe getting the finishing that you want 
from that top six and Elias Pettersson's line, all you got to say is two goals in the month of February for Elias Pettersson. So Dakota Joshua definitely matters in this lineup because there was the best third line in hockey and it was elevating your team in games that maybe the top six wasn't clicking to that level. So has it t- had an impact? No doubt about that. But I do feel like, you know, those details have fallen off for the Vancouver Canucks that they as a team had earlier on. And Batch, I really think it comes down to some of your star players. And JT Miller's been on an absolute tear. I think that Pew Suter, Brock Besser, JT Miller line, if you start looking at some of the underlying statistics and how they control play, has been a heck of a line. It's the second or 1A, 1B, whatever you want to call it, Elias Pettersson line right now that is searching for answers. So to me, when it comes down to it, I think it's inconsistency in the forward group and defense. But right now... Any good team, and this was the case with the Canucks when they were, you know, doing an amazing job in January. You got to have a one-two punch. In January, they had a one-two-three punch. Right now, they've got a one punch. And anytime, and I'm a boxing fan, anytime you're relying on a one-punch strategy, it's not a great strategy. You got to throw combos. And right now, the Canucks are just throwing one punches. They don't have that chemistry on the first line, or sorry, the Pedersen line and the third line. And that's where I think they're falling off. You can't rely on one line to win your hockey games, especially against good teams. Another question from J dog on Twitter asking who would be your one ad at the deadline and what would you trade for to bring this player in? And I'm going to kind of give a cop out answer because this kind of builds off what you were talking about with needing a one, two punch, not relying on one line to get the job done is you need someone to play with Pedersen. The key to not being able to have a one, two, three punch to me has been the lack of a consistent running mate with Elias Pedersen. Like the Miller Besser duo has been great almost all season long. The Bluger Joshua Garland line when healthy and together have been consistent and great all season long. It's the Pedersen line to me that needs to be solidified and I'm not going to hang this all on PD although certainly he bears some of the responsibility with his play but who's he been playing with like he's played with Mikheyev, Hoaglander, Kuzmenko, Lafferty was up on that line, Lindholm played wing on that line for a little bit and they haven't been able to solidify that spot so we hear coaches all the time talk about duos and you know, if you want to call Garland and Joshua a duo, you probably could, although I think Bluger is the, the perfect fit there. Maybe if you're going to roll Lindholm down the middle, you'd put him between those two guys on a quote-unquote third line. Miller and Besser are an obvious duo that have been together all season long and have both had great success. Who's the guy that's the duo with Elias Pettersson? There isn't someone in that spot now. So whether it's Jake Gensel, you know, you mentioned Anthony Mantha earlier, whether it's another player that could fit that description, it's that that role on the team that to me is the number one thing that I would want to address if I was Canucks management. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think, you know, and you don't have to uh, go back on the podcast to to <laughs> to isolate what I've been talking about. Hard skill, right? This is and this is a need not only now in the month of March, but also in the playoffs where who is the Vancouver Canucks Ivan Barbashev? Essentially, looking back at last year with Vegas, and he was such a perfect fit on that line with Jack Eichel where you're looking at a guy that can put up points, but at the same time, when the game gets that much tougher, 
and you're looking for not playing on your heels, on the front foot, that can really change the momentum in a game, is there a player that's out there right now that maybe doesn't give you a point per game? Maybe it's a half a point per game, um, you know, kind of a statistic, but they're able to give you that. They're able to win wall battles. They're able to to really lean lean in and provide that. I think Jake Gensel, like in a perfect world, is maybe that guy for the Vancouver Canucks. But I don't I don't think they can get that done just based on where they currently sit. Anthony Mantha is a really interesting example. Twenty nine years of age. He's a UFA at the end of this year, so there's an element of risk. But at the same time, is there a potential to bring him in on a show me deal to say? If we get rid of some salary on our side, that we bring in another player that's six foot five, you know, he's been able to put up 19 goals this year, and he's not a point per game player, but he's got that potential to be a real mean player, and he's been able to lean into that at certain points. He hasn't been a consistent player. So I think, you know, does he have the ceiling of an Ivan Barbashev, a 60 point player? No, he's never he's never even hit 50. But I, I want a player with a mean streak and Mantha does have an element of that. You just need consistency. So if I were to pick a player right now, I would lean that way. It's an it's a risk of a play because he hasn't brought it that consistently. But I think you need somebody that can play physical. You need somebody that can be on the forecheck. And you need somebody that can create a little bit of space with skill for a player like Elias Patterson. So to me, it's that hard skill winger that I think this team still needs. Uh, and this ties into another question. Sticking on a theme today, it's going well. Uh, Depressed Ravens fan on Twitter uh, writes in and asks, do you think Buchnevich is a possibility for the Canucks or no? And Pavel Buchnevich right now is in the third year of a four-year deal that pays him $5.8 million in terms of the average annual value. He has a 12-team no-trade list. Um, so he would control that process to a certain extent, assuming the Canucks are on his no-trade list, which you don't know whether they would be or not. Um, but that is a fascinating question to me, not so much because of the player and his fit, but because of the team and the situation they're in. And at the time of recording here, the Blues find themselves seven points behind both Nashville and L.A., for the final wild card. The Blues do have a couple of games in hand on the Predators, but this is a situation where St. Louis needs to make a decision about whether they're buying or whether they're selling, and they're starting to fall out of this playoff conversation, right? They're tied on points with Calgary and Seattle. Minnesota is only one point back. Those are the four teams below the playoff bar and it's going to take a Herculean effort for any one of them to catch Nashville or L.A. at this point in the season with just over 20 games left for most teams. So, to me, like, I think Buchnevich could be a fit if they can make the cap dollars work. Um, I like the player. I like what he could bring in a top-six role. The question to me around this one is, are the Blues selling or not? Yeah, I guess the question, that's a big question. And also like his, you know, the 76 point player in 2021, 2022, he's, he's been able to be a point per game player in the NHL that season. He played 73 games. Now, the question I have is, you know, if that duo, if Niels Hoaglander is now established that he is a, a top six player in the NHL for the Vancouver Canucks, I like that fit. Imagine a Hoaglander, Pedersen, Buchnevich line. It's not bad. They got some skill there, right? You can, you can really isolate that duo 
But if you're looking for an individual that might be able to bump Niels Hoaglander down back to the, the fourth line or the third line, remember, Niels Hoaglander and that fourth line were doing really, really well. And if you're trying to build out depth with this team and say, maybe we're trying to pick up a player that bumps Hoaglander down, I don't know if Buchnevich is that player. He's he's a high-skill guy, but you still need a certain type of profile to to be alongside Elias Pettersson and a Buchnevich. So I, I like the player. I just wonder of what's your long-term game with Niels Hoaglander. Is he the guy that you're going to stick with uh, being in that top six? And from the way that we've read the situation, some of the quotes that Rick Tockett has given, it seems like Niels Hoaglander's one of the guys that he can trust right now who brings an effort on the forecheck. So Buchnevich, I like that idea. Another name I'm going to throw out there as well, and this really depends on what Nashville wants to do because, as you mentioned, they are in a playoff spot. But one of the guys in Batch, I've mentioned this guy numerous times when Nashville is playing the Vancouver Canucks. Tommy Novak, to me, is a player that I really, really like. He plays down the middle, but he can play down the wing. He's the same size as a Buchnevich. Uh, is this a guy that might be an option? He's a UFA at the end of this year. He hasn't played too much in the NHL, but he is a you know a 26-year-old player. And if Nashville at some point starts to drop out here, or maybe they're saying, hey, we're good, but we're not that good, if he's available, I, I definitely take a look at this guy because I like the way he plays. He's a shooter, he's a playmaker, and he can give you that middle six, you know, that third piece on a line. Um, and he's been able to do a great job in Nashville with some of the, the middle six play there. Bushnevich as well, seven goals in his last seven games, so heating up at the right time. But yeah, Novak's an intriguing player for me. I just, it, to me, it's less likely that Nashville sells because they do seem mm-hmm. to really be in the driver's seat for a playoff spot, but at the same time, we don't really have a body of work on Barry Trotz as a GM, and if he says, you know, does it make sense for us to just limp into the last wild card spot and likely be eliminated in the first round with the group we've got, does it make sense to sell anyway, even if we are sitting in a playoff spot right now? That's going to be interesting to see. The other thing I wanted to add to the conversation about Hoaglander in that top six role is, you know, you're right about what Tockett has said about Hoaglander and his play of late. He has also commented on the fact that he hasn't got what he's wanted from his fourth line in recent weeks, and he thinks that part of that is because Hoaglander was helping drive that line, and ever since he's moved Hoaglander to the top six, the fourth line's been a lot quieter and and hasn't driven play to the same degree. So if he could bring in a player, if the organization brings in a player that he can put with Pedersen where he feels comfortable maybe, let's say, putting Mikheyev on that line and moving Hoaglander back down to the fourth line because you've got your duo of Pedersen, Buchnevich, Pedersen, Novak, Pedersen, Mantha, whoever that player is going to be, Pedersen, Gensel, you never know. Um, Then can you put Hoaglander on the fourth line and it helps in terms of all four of your lines being able to drive play. And, you know, it's it doesn't feel great for Hoaglander because it's like, congratulations, you've played well. Your reward is you're being demoted. But when you're playing on a team that has championship aspirations, oftentimes individual players have to sacrifice their own personal success for the betterment of the team. And I wonder if the best thing for the team is fourth liner Niels Hoaglander. Well, the key here is also trust. Where are you trusted? I think Niels Hoaglander right now, when he's playing in a fourth-line role, he is trusted for that role. Uh, Batch, you know, we've talked about this often, whether it's the game broadcast or here on this podcast, it's, you know, the heat gets hotter in the playoffs. 
the pressure that the Canucks and the players are feeling right now, and I, I mean this from the, the stars all the way down to the final forward, the extra forward, and the extra defender, it's just a different level of pressure. So even though you might be able to cope in game 62 or 63, the playoffs are a different animal altogether. There's a war of attrition, and the trust in the top six is a different level of trust. So, you know, it's not a, an indictment on Niels Hoaglander. He's never played at that level in the playoffs where you still want you want some, you know, backup essentially to say, hey, Niels, you're great in a fourth-line role. If we need you in the playoffs in a top-six role because we need to shake it up or if there's an injury, that's a great position to be where we can elevate you. But if that's your starting point, you know, in the playoffs, uh, you want to have some options, Batch. So I don't think it's necessarily, a, um, you know, a situation where you want to get a little discouraged. It's just you, you need multiple players in multiple roles in the playoffs to succeed. All right, it's time for the rose ceremony before we get out of here for this week. Randeep, I'll let you go first. Who is your rose going to this week? Yeah, it's it's been a challenging week for Vancouver, but you know who I'm going to give my rose to? I'm going to give it to Casey DeSmith because we <laughs> haven't seen this guy play in forever, and I know his stats over the last number of games haven't been great, but to me, this is a guy that this year has really solidified his role in the crease. I feel for him because... Based on his, you know, win-loss and, and his appearances, you know, I know it's an 896 goal sa- uh, save percentage now, but his goals against average is three. He's done the job this year. I give him my rose because I'd love to see him in the crease a little bit more. I know it's a difficult time for the Canucks right now, but this is a guy that's given them confidence. He started on Hockey Night in Canada against the New York Rangers. He played some really important games. I give him my rose because I'd like to see him in the crease again. And I think we probably will see him in the crease in Anaheim on Sunday. That remains to be seen, though. My rose is going to JT Miller, who, it goes without saying, has been the best Canuck in recent weeks in spite of the fact this team is struggling. 12 points in the last seven, and they've only won one of those last seven games. And you can see how much Miller's strong play is benefiting his line mates, too. Besser is the only other Canuck who's a point per game during that stretch with five goals, three assists, eight points in the last seven games. So Miller gets my rose, and Besser maybe gets a rose petal from me uh, for the way that he's been playing, too. Those two guys are are really the biggest positive around this team right now, and, and that is encouraging. As much as there's been so much talk about Pedersen and him needing to be better and the Canucks' other top players, that two of their best players are continuing to deliver in spite of the fact that the team has struggled, and to be honest, in spite of the fact that the power play has struggled quite a lot over the last few weeks as well. All right, that does it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us here on In the Booth. As we always remind you, if you missed any part of the program, you can get the podcast on the Canucks Central feed. We'll talk to you next week on this show after the trade deadline, so that should be a great program, and we'll talk to you next on the air on Sunday when the Canucks visit the Anaheim Ducks. A 5 o'clock face-off. The pregame show will begin at 4 right here on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.